I really think I win, you lose is a, a very unevolved model. Collaboration is way more evolved, but even collaboration can become I win and you win, and, and it just creates more. It's about making the pie bigger. Howard Getson is the founder and CEO of Capital Logics. They make an amplified intelligence technology platform that helps businesses make better decisions, take smarter actions, and continually improve performance. He also runs an algorithmic hedge fund powered by Capital Logistics Platform and speaks at industry events across the globe. Howard's prior company, Intel Agent Control, was an Inc. 500 AI company and won an IBM Lotus Beacon Award for Best Business Application. Howard holds an MBA and JD from Northwestern University and lives in Dallas with his wife and four dogs. All right, Howard, it is great to have you on the Gravity Podcast. I've enjoyed getting to spend some time with you and, and become friends. And certainly we're involved in a lot of similar paths and networks, but it's, it's great to have you here and have a chance to have you share with our audience your, your full journey. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, just as an aside, it was nice to have you here in Dallas last week, but nice to be here electronically as well. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It's always great to be in person. It's nice to start doing that stuff again. And uh, terrific just to feel like the world is opening up a little bit. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I, uh, I missed it. You know, it's been a great year in a lot of respects and being able to pull back and, and be home and not travel, all of that was great. But, you know, getting back out there and, and having some sense of normalcy has been really nice. Uh, your podcast uh, is about the full journey of success. And a, a lot of times it hits kind of tough times in somebody's life and what it, what it meant for them and how things changed. I really think this year is one of those years where people had a choice and there are some people who find excuses and other people who find a way. And this is COVID was like Harry Potter's sorting hat that said, you know, you put it on and it said, oh, you're in Gryffindor. Somebody else is in Slytherin. It didn't change people, but it really started to reveal who you are. And, and the choices that you make. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I've seen that as well this year. And, um, you know, it reveals sometimes for better or worse people's, uh, you know, best and, and worst. And I've seen both throughout the year. But you're right. I think there is a lot to be said for just choice and really making a choice to uh, be with things as they are. And then, you know, make the best of them or let them get the best of you. These are, you know, these, this has been a year of, of having to make that choice for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's start with your journey. You're right. We're, we're about sharing the full journey on the podcast. And uh, I'd love to start at the beginning with you and hear a little bit about your early childhood, where you're from, your family upbringing, anything that you think really would be important for us to hear from the early days? So I was born in Philadelphia. Uh, I, I live in Dallas now, but uh, I grew up in, in the Northeast. 
and uh, a very close family. Uh, my my paternal grandfather uh, ran a catering business, uh, but before that, he was a professional wrestler. He was uh, the Green Hornet, <laughs> and so as I grew up. I got to meet all these people that you would see on TV, Pedro Morales, Andre the Giant, all these people. And I would watch them on stage, you know, larger than life. And then behind the scenes, it was like a family and they'd play cards and everybody was friends and they traveled together. It's kind of a carny lifestyle, but it was just really funny. They were polite and nice. And uh, that, that's, that's like one little thing from my side. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, that's a nice fun fact. I, uh, I the Green Hornet and and Andre yeah, and yeah. I, I mean, mean uh, I, I remember some of these guys from from the wrestling days, and 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 um, maybe it's a bit of a spoiler alert. I I, I guess you're officially um, validating that wrestling is not real. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know that uh, a lot of the injuries they get are real because when you get hit by a chair, the chair is real, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Some of the stories I've heard are hysterical. Just be, And it, it's not that the other wrestler hurts you so much. It's the fans in the audience who get into it so much that they hit you with the chair and stuff. And anyway, it's, uh, yeah. 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 Well, well, it's an interesting way to grow up. That's, uh, you know, probably had a, an impact on you one way or another, just being around that. Yeah. Kind of a weird aside that, that's related to that. In the back of cartoons, you know, the, the, the little cartoon books, you know, Archie comics or whatever, comics, comic books, they always had these uh, little ads. And so I saw the ads for Charles Atlas and Joe Weider and all that stuff. And I would, I would send away for the free sample of this, you know, the guaranteed placebo that. Um, but later... I started clipping a lot of those ads and it's fascinating how similar marketing is now. You've got click funnels and landing pages, uh, but headlines and, and grabbing attention is the same. And uh, even in my very first real entrepreneurial activity, I went back to a lot of the, the headlines that I remembered as kids and tried to be empathetic and get into the mind of the buyer that way. But, but really that thought process started way back there. I mean, what gets an eight-year-old to do chores and, and start a business so they can raise enough money so they can buy the thing that they've been thinking about in the back of a comic book? Mm -hmm. um, that was probably some of my first entrepreneurial endeavors. Although I sold fireflies and frogs, we had a, a, a creek behind our house and I used to catch frogs and sell them to the other kids. In, in sixth grade, I started my first, I would call it real business. We created a little factory in our basement and I, I would make hand done sand painting terrariums. And then I sold them to local florists with handmade signs that said made by a local sixth grade student yeah. in high school i was the starting varsity quarterback uh, starting as a sophomore and i had a uh, a door-to-door -door 
I would sell stereos and I would knock on somebody's door and say, uh, uh, hi, I'm Howard Getson. Oh, I know who you are. But then I would sell them a stereo. That's great. Um, and Howard, tell me that this kind of you know entrepreneurial uh, way, which obviously came in very early, you know, and as as a child, was that something that was uh, you were around? Were your parents entrepreneurs, or, oh, or where my, would you attribute that kind of energy coming from? My my parents swear I came out of the womb that way. Uh, one of my favorite first toys was a cash register. Uh, my my other grandfather owned a pharmacy, and I used to sit at the cash register and I would take the money and learn how to make change and stuff. And I thought that was really cool. Uh, and he would pay me at, at the end of the day by giving me a pack of juicy fruit gum. <laughs> my um, grandfather was also a pharmacist, so we've got that in common. Uh, just as a, a kind of weird aside after that, when I was at Duke, uh, I went to Duke undergrad. In my fraternity, one of my pledge class fraternity brothers was Bill Wrigley. He now goes by Bo Wrigley, but it, it, he owned you know, Wrigley's gum. Or not. Uh, but that was, my, that was my original compensation. That's what whispered in my ear what to do and what not to. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, my parents were civil rights workers. Uh, My dad founded a program uh, called the Model Cities Program, which tried to take urban blight kind of bad areas of town and and find ways to create art programs and playgrounds and uh, uh, make the cities better. Uh, He later got hired by the University of Massachusetts. That's when we moved to Boston. Uh, he was a dean in their system, community affairs, where, where they opened a campus in a very bad area, uh, suburb of Boston. Um, and they ended up uh, spending a lot of time trying to find ways to improve the community, uh, Dorchester, uh, Boxbury, a lot. Uh, real low income. And now there's kind of a partnership between the university and the city, and it's made it better. He then became uh, Assistant Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare under Dukakis. Hmm. Um, And so I grew up with people like Teddy Kennedy and uh, Barney Frank in my house, and I had no idea they were famous. They were just people my dad knew. Mm-hmm. I'm not nearly as uh, liberal as as they are fiscally. In fact, I'm I'm probably a fiscal conservative, but I'm I'm definitely socially liberal, and uh, my upbringing clearly <laughs> had a lot to do with that. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine it's a pretty interesting environment to be growing up in, and at that time, and certainly, you know, there's been a lot, you know, in in over the last. You know, a few years in our lifetime that you know that experience probably comes back up for you. Certainly shaped you, and maybe you can just kind of expand a little bit more on just how that influenced you and continues to influence you today. There's, as I was thinking about that, as you asked me, I realized there's one other thing that really influenced me as a child. Uh, I had a brother who died, and uh, 
happened when I was pretty young. And the impact that had on my family was, was pretty huge. Unconsciously, I think that I always tried to fill each day with as much as I could. Not like I legitimately felt like I was trying to live two lives, but I realized how precious life is. And there's a lot of people that I see who kind of are corks that float on the water and go where the current takes them. And uh, I really believe that it's important to choose where you want to go, to be more like a speedboat that can go against the current. Uh, but you say, here's where I am, here's where I want to go, and here's how I'm going to get them. The same is true with social programs. The best changes are often not easy. It, it's, it's about measuring the progress you make towards the destination, but having a committed direction. And you don't have to go lockstep where you want to go. But if you don't really have a direction you want to go, then activity isn't necessarily progress. It's just activity. Mm-hmm. And, and way too many people make that mistake. They want to be busy or they want to feel like they were productive. But is it really productive if you're going this way and that way kind of against, against yourself? It's, it's way better to be aligned and to have even just thoughts where nothing happens externally. But you can make a ton of progress even just in your head if you know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things come to mind that you know, we have strategic coach uh, as a mutual source of tools and learning and network. Uh, and you know, just thinking. Oh, amazing program! Dan Sullivan and, and Babs, uh, strategic coach Howard and I both have been participating in for many years. And you know, I like how Dan says, first of all, you know, who do you want to be a hero to? So that's you know, maybe the direction that you're referring to, knowing where you want to go based on that to some degree, and then always measure backwards. Right, gap not gain. You know, um, yeah. yeah. Those are some key concepts. Uh, back in the old days, he called uh, that first principle the bigger future, and and the concept is basically you're growing or dying, and as soon as you let your past be bigger than your future, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, some people might use the word purpose. Right, uh, mission, purpose, vision, values. But there are so many exercises he had. One that kind of sticks out in my head. Well, it's actually a combination of two. The lifetime extender basically has you imagine how long you're going to live and what the quality of your life would be like in the last few years. And so it's it's where are you going to live? Who are you going to spend time with? You know, and I imagined a family compound and spending time with my grandkids. And, uh, and I came up with this rule that said, I'm only going to spend 20% of my time doing business and 80% is going to be doing um, charity. And, and, and I realized charity was the wrong word. And I said, working for a good cause. And it, uh, just as an aside, uh, that's now part of our business. 10% of our top line is allocated to good causes. And we have a filter for investors where uh, 
Uh, it's a handshake deal, but basically we say once you're playing with house money with us, we want 10% of your profit to go to a good cause. It doesn't have to be through us, but once a year at our partner meeting, we want you to share those good causes. And I want people who not only do well, I want them to do good. And I think that's a really important internal directional compass. And frankly, it's an asshole filter. Um, yeah, well, you know, we talked about that a little bit, and I, and I really like how you approach that because one, it it's not about nonprofit, it's not about you know philanthropy. It can be, but it's also about anything that's doing good, right? right. So you might start another company, you might make and, an investment. And frankly, I don't have to agree with you that what you're doing is good, but I I love it when people are willing. To leave a dent in the universe and say, my bigger future isn't I win and somebody else loses. It's I want to leave things better than I found them. I I think that's an incredibly important organizing principle for someone's psyche. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that you mentioned, the asshole filter, you know, is, is really great because I think what I hear when you say that is you don't want to surround yourself. You don't want to do business with so much so that you're not even willing to take investor dollars from people that you're not aligned with. Yeah. You know, And that is a hard, fast, you will only surround yourself with people that have the kind of values you want to be around. So uh, I'll tell you where that came from. Um, and And I'm not I'm not going to turn away money and say, I won't do business with someone because I don't believe in, in what they believe in. I'm not that. That's just not part of who I am. But I do have opportunity filters for layers of my life. And uh, I'll just tell you, my wife is an incredible guard dog. Boy, that's the wrong word. But the, you know, kind of as a, as, a, as a true insight, we call her the baby dragon. She's tiny, but she can breathe fire. And we, we say that to her face lovingly. But in my company, we're willing to have investors. But there are, Jen has a hard no, where if, if Jen doesn't believe someone is well-intentioned, then she will not allow me to take them as an investor. And it's not worth me even fighting, but it, there, there was a, court case in Ohio about uh, corn. And ultimately, the justice ended up saying, uh, you know, I, I know it when I see it. Well, I can't define what we're looking for or, or what's exclusionary, but I know it when I feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I started to come up with some of these filters in Tony Robbins seminars uh, Date with Destiny is a, a fabulous one. It's where you you kind of look at the rules that govern your life and you realize that they're not hard and fast, but that you get to edit them and you should have rules that support you and 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 not that hurt you. And one of the kind of offshoots of that for me is I came up with three absolute yeses. So things that had to be true in a marriage or a primary relationship. And Three things that could never be false as I was trying to make better choices and stuff. And one of the things that were in my absolute yes list was I never want to be in a relationship 
that stole my energy. I wanted it to create. So you can think about cleansing and clogging, people who light you up or make you weak. And originally, this was about primary relationships for me, which really says something about uh, perhaps my second marriage. But that was a joke, but not really. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure, but yeah, well, yeah, I could see how it could be both. There's some it truth there too. Yeah. It is both. But all of it ends up serving. So anyway, the concept was, have you ever gotten a phone call and your assistant says something like, this person's on the phone and you go, oh. And, and it's like... It, yeah. So it's almost like the universe is whispering to you, this is not your path. But the arrogant little human inside you says, no, no, I can make it work. But that's a path of pain. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too foo-foo on you. I mean, I do run an AI uh, hedge fund, so there, there's very little foo-foo externally. But internally, uh, I believe that loving is the primary energy on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that's a weird statement. but it's if one you I also it, fully agree with, so you're okay. But, but if, you, if you see a dog, you want to pet it. If there's a baby, it's like, ah. Oh. And when you meet somebody, I met I met my wife uh, April sixteenth, two thousand and four, and it was like love at first meeting. By the end of that first weekend, I knew my life had changed, and uh, I, I still remember. You know, we met in Bali, Indonesia. I had just given a speech there, and she was the president of uh, EO Indonesia, and. Not to go into too much detail, but I had a, a suite at the Ritz. We were overlooking um, a cliff, looking onto the ocean, sunsets happening. And I, I got a little bit misty. And she looked at me and was like, what's going on? And I said, I just realized that the natural energy in the universe is loving. And everything else, the fear, the greed, the resentment, the scar tissue is an artifact that we bring to it, but it's not real. It's us. I mean, look, we, we just had this and you're a stranger, mm-hmm. but think how hard it is to have this over time. Mm-hmm. You can have it with almost no effort, but yet you have to make effort to fuck things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. You're, you're actually articulating my probably, you know, most uh, deepest held belief, you know, that, that love really at the end of the day is, I believe it's, it's the same thing as God. I think that's what God is. It's an energy, right? And it's perfect and loving. And that what happens is we add our stories and rackets and and, and, and actually, you know, kind of coming back to the childhood piece, you know, it, you're, I believe you're born pure. That baby energy is this kind of perfect, godly, loving energy. And then what happens is life. And, you know, that's, you know, parental influence, societal influence, good, bad, or other ways. And we start to add layers to it and live into those layers, mostly unconsciously. So until there's some sort of moment awakening, hopefully that has you start to return to that energy and live in a way that is truly aligned with your, your natural way of being. 
So to close the strategic coach loop that we opened at the beginning of this, the lifetime extender is about what you thought the end of your life was. And then if you say, but what happens if you live a lot longer, how would you fill that time? And then why aren't you doing that now? And the reason is that so much of what you learn during life is a result of pain that people spend time trying to figure out how to avoid what they don't want. And one of the biggest hidden gifts of strategic coach or processes like that is it's focusing on what you do want. And even on the stuff where you're saying, I, I want to I transform a past experience that wasn't as healthy, you can't change the past, but you can change what the past means. And if you mine it for insights, most people do that superficially and they try to figure out how to avoid the thing they didn't like. But the real trick is to figure out how to mine that for what they do want rather than how to avoid what they don't want. And yeah. so to use the opposition of what they didn't want as a way to set the anchor point for the reciprocal thing that they do want to recognize the dynamic range and the different emotion, energy, or activity that would put you on this side of the scale or that side of the scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Howard, I'm kind of curious, you know, because this kind of learning that you and I have both had at Coach and you mentioned Tony Robbins, how much of it do you find to be kind of just bringing you back to that kind of whole loving way that you were born into? How much of it is really opening up new things that you had never thought of before? I mean, tell me a little bit about just kind of how these learnings, tools, you know, I don't know, leadership and, and you know, third-party leadership has, has really shaped your way of thinking or brought you back to maybe a way that you used to be. Uh, I'm one step too intellectual to answer you from a feeling point first. Um, by, by the way, uh, there's a really cool model uh, developed by a guy named Darren Sherlaws, and it's called Think, Feel, Know. And what, what it's saying is, if you're a coach or a parent, or, you know, recognize that you have to start with thinking. It's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's head thrash. You have to let people blow out that buffer before they can get to the point where they're feeling. Then you have to blow out the heart thrash, you know, some of the, because feelings can sometimes be messy too. And then what's left is you get to knowing and, and knowing are kind of indelible principles, first principles. And, and those are great. That's that true North compass heading. And if you get to knowing a, a lot of stuff that's easier, I, I kind of believe that there are some integral truths. Uh, there's a guy named Ken Wilbur uh, who writes about integral theory. And, and he's done it with religion. He's done it with science. He's done it with a lot of things. But if you look at Native American culture, there's a creation myth. If you look at uh, Hindu uh, or Norse mythologies, there's a creation myth. If you look at Judeo-Christian you know, there's a story about creation. And you're going to find out that there are certain archetypes based on people. You know, the, 
the king, the warrior, uh, the advisor, the lover. But there's also thought forms, the Ten Commandments, um, you know, your principles to live by the golden rule, so many things. All these cultures have those things. And what's different is the story that's culturally appropriate that means something to them in the context of their lives to teach these things that you would think are self-evident, but obviously still need to be taught. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pivot for, it's going to seem like I'm changing the subject, but I'm not. Superstition is really just conditioning. So if you put a pigeon in a cage and they get fed only if they press the right lever two times, you'll find out that the pigeon develops an elaborate dance where they bob their head, flap their wings, turn around, peck the the lever, then they bob their head, flap their wings, and do it again because they ultimately got rewarded when they did that. And they start to believe that all of those things are what was necessary to achieve the result. But the truth is all they really had to do is press the lever twice. And so much of what happens in life is superstition or us seeing patterns or attributing cause and effect to things that don't really create the cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's really the key of most self-development work is to figure out what activities produce the results that you're looking for and, and to start to find ways to filter out the noise so you focus on the signal. Interesting. So let, let me take you back because I'm hearing kind of, uh, I, I hear your answer in there that you know, you've really uh, used these tools to kind of take you back a lot of ways to simplify. And, and, you know, you mentioned your brother and, and I want to just hear a little bit more because it sounds to me like, you know, I don't know how old you were when you lost your brother and, and just how that shaped your family and you, but it does sound like there's an influence in there for sure in some way tied to that event. And maybe you could just, you know, speak to that a little bit more. Yeah. It's a, it's not a pleasant story. I was, uh, I was young. I, I was uh, two and a half, but I was a smart two and a half. Uh, my mother was teaching Spanish at Temple University, a school in Philadelphia. My dad, uh, I, I told you, was uh, working at the Model Cities program, and we had a nanny. Uh, her, her name, uh, her name was Katie, and Katie took care of me and my brother. I remember telling my mother that Katie would lock me in the basement. And uh, I still remember uh, being at the kitchen table and my mother said, you know, tell me what you just told me. And Katie was there. So I told her and she slapped me and she said, you're not allowed to lie, lying bad. But I'm not lying. And she sent me upstairs. Fast forward few weeks I was still getting locked in the basement and I heard uh, it wasn't really locked in the basement I later found out it was I was put in the basement and she would put a kitchen chair in front of the door so uh, anyway I'm I'm in the basement and I hear my brother crying and I, I found a way to push the door open 
I saw him throwing up in his crib, um, but I dialed zero and I told them to come to 1516 Hillside Drive, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And again, I was, you know, two something. So the, the firemen and the ambulance came and they, uh, they used the, the machine that shocks them. And I got really upset. Don't hurt my brother. Um, right as they were taking him away is when my mother finally got home. Uh, we later found out Katie was an alcoholic and uh, she ended up living the rest of her life in a, a nunnery. Uh, but but it, it, it had profound impact. Uh, later, as I did self-development work, it almost feels like if somebody wasn't willing to listen to something, I I felt like they could die. You know, like it became really important if I believe something strongly to really fight for it. And on some level, that's good, but taken to the extremes, it's bad. Um, and you have to become aware of it to get past it. But uh, well, it's, it uh, even even today, I'm sure it impacts how I feel about certain things or certain people. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work and I'm past it. But, uh, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. It's a profound story. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon in this podcast for us to kind of find some things along the way that you know, aren't often spoken about or even thought about or are really been revisited in many, many years. It seems to be kind of a, a theme here as we talk about our life. And, and it's really important to me, and I really appreciate you sharing so honestly as you just did, because I think that it does really end up in one way, shape, or form being a pretty shared experience that whether it be an abuse or a trauma or some sort of event in our childhood. And it sometimes, you know, I've interviewed guests that just have had unconditionally loving childhoods, which is the event. Um, but it, these events, especially, you know, as a two-year-old, you know, as, as a child, I mean, how you don't you don't have the ability to filter you are going to embody that experience and it's going to take you on a path for some time you've mentioned you know doing the work to release uh, some of what it embodied in you but it took you on a path for sure from that moment forward for some period of time and you know it sounds like you know in your case that was a pretty High achieving path, the uh, you know sophomore starting quarterback. You go on to to, to Duke, you know. So you you know yeah, how I much of this MBA. fueled you? Yeah, I had an MBA and a law degree by the time I was twenty three. Yeah, and, and impressive, and you know your your you know accolades are are many. So so tell me a little bit about kind of in hindsight, how do you see this event being a part of that story? I, I really believe that I, from an early age, recognized how precious life was and that I wanted to fill it with things that were worth filling. Uh, and I realized that th there's a difference between walking 
jogging, running, and sprinting. Mm-hmm. And if, if you use that metaphor, how much of your life are you actually sprinting really at your maximum effort towards what you really want? The difference between good and great is infinitesimal. Most people can take advantage of opportunities, but how many people create it? Um, every day, if you're walking with the people that you're walking with, you, you end up covering the same ground. But if, if they get tired and go home and you do a little bit more, you start to pull ahead. And then if it happens again and again and again, all of a sudden you don't compete with them. It was that way for me in the shot put. Uh, I, I ended up, I was a state champion shot putter. I, I, I placed third in a conference meet in college uh, in shot put as well. And I probably gave up 100 pounds to the people I threw against. And the reason is I loved what I did and I put in the work to become masterful. Well, there's a big difference between dabbling and, and being good. And there's a big difference between being good and being really good or consistently good. There's a difference between that and being a persistent high performer. And that means that you're not only doing well compared to other people, but compared to your past performance in the face of mistakes, uh, lack of information, changing conditions, competition, um, life. And then mastery is even a step beyond that, but it requires commitment. It requires focus. It requires effort. And almost never do you become masterful unintentionally, right? I mean, so really the, the, the key is to figure out what you want. And, and I have this fundamental belief that says I can do anything I commit to. So I have to be really careful what I commit to. Because if you commit to the wrong things, you're going to achieve that as well. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about what you've committed to. But before, I want to just kind of put a bow on this, this story. I, I have seen, sadly, as you know, I have um, grown up and, and had children and, and um, you know, have a family, I've seen tragedy around me. We all have. We've had friends who have suffered terrible tragedies in their families similar to yours. And I'm wondering, how did it shape your parents? You know, you've spoken about how it's fueled you. What happened to the family dynamic to your parents? How did they uh, move forward with their lives after the loss of your brother? It's a hard question. My mother is universally loved by the people that are not her children. And her children love her. I'm just saying that uh, if, if you talk to any of my mother's friends or the charities that she supports, I really believe that she committed to making a difference in the world. And I think that deep down, she felt bad about what happened in the family. And she spent a whole lot of time focusing externally instead of internally, because it was, there was less scar tissue there and it was easier approval. And in a sense, they recognized her true value. And I think it was harder to get that same level of validation inside. Mm -hmm. Um, My father also 
won numerous awards for his philanthropic and efforts or community service, but a whole lot of their effort was separate rather than together. Uh, I remember before my dad died, he was telling me that, uh, you know, through it all, he stayed together. And I was like, it's like the arsonist holding up the baby and said, look, I saved the baby. It's like, yeah, but you set the building on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure that staying together was the right choice, but it's the choice they made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the truth is my dad deeply loved my mother, but he also deeply resented some things. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It was tough. My, I, I was the only one of the children in our family who was alive to see it. But I know that this has impacted my other brothers, brothers and sisters as well. Meanwhile, it doesn't have to mean anything. I mean, the language that you use to describe it, the parts of it that you focus on and what you choose to do make all the difference. Uh, someone very close to me had their very first sexual encounter, not until they were 18, and it was a rape. And, and it ended with a SWAT team saving them after three days of well, torture. But that person is not sexually repressed, almost the opposite. And what they decided was, uh, if they let that limit or damage them, then that person wins forever. Meanwhile, other people have had far less things than that happen, and they shy away from things forever. So it's not what happens, it's what you do. Yeah. And even if you've done something for a long time, it doesn't mean that you can't choose to do something different after. You're right. That's right. I I think that's true. It kind of comes back to the early part of our conversation um, about choice. And and there are some situations and choices that are um, way more difficult to move through. But clearly you've done the work to be able to move through the experiences in your life. And um, I do want to kind of come back to this um, idea of commitment and uh, choice and, and kind of what you committed to and chose to do with your life as you graduated from college. Obviously, you know, a lot of high performance, you know, physically, mentally, you know, on the field, in the classroom, in life. Then, then what? What do you choose to commit to? You know, just as you were saying that, and it's not really the answer to your question, but if, I mean, if I were to show you a picture of me in college, you would say, what happened to you? But in many respects, I'm still an elite athlete. It's just I'm using a different muscle. <laughs> sure. But, I, I got but it. Even... Even last year during COVID, I flew 120,000 miles. The year before, I flew 280,000 miles. And in a sense, the same way I used to prepare myself for a competition, I prepare myself for business, for life. I, I think about things incredibly deeply. I visualize what I want to happen again and again and again and again and again. And, and I, I actually believe that this is the key that the best way to predict the future is to create it 
And the best way to be able to create it is to think about it enough that you can say, so if that's the end state, what's the step midway between here and there? And if if that's the end state, what's the what's the likely sticking point between here and there? What capability would I have to create? Who do I know who can do that? Chris Voss has a saying, somebody somebody asked him, uh, you know, do you think people rise to the occasion? And he said, no, I think they fall to the level of their preparedness. Mm -hmm. And so this thing that made me, I'll I'll use the word great, um, Mm -hmm. is part of my character. but, But there's something called a character diamond where the thing that's your unique ability, the thing that you rely on, you often rely on too much and it's also your Achilles heel. And if you were my child, that thing where I might go through a presentation 27 times and continue to make a, 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 like I unfold this sentence or I change a word like and, you know, or, or I capitalize this one word to emphasize something. And, and they seem like these tiny little things, but it's not over for me because it doesn't feel right. They look at that almost as an act of violence. You know, my son just, my son still is a competitive uh, rugby player. And uh, I was, I, I went to the game. I actually took my, uh, I, I still have a business coach. Uh, Jim Eckelberger is a retired two-star admiral in the Navy. And uh, every month I meet a, you know, one-on-one with him and we talk about leadership and strategy and stuff. And, and I think it's important to show up in the saw, but I took Jim Eckelberger to that game. And uh, it just so happened that a couple of days later I was having dinner with him and I showed him the text I sent my son. And he was like, wow, that was harsh. And I was like, no, it was loving. I told him what a great job he did. And I was saying, you know, you played with... Uh, a level of intensity and decisiveness different than what I normally see. I was proud of him. And he's like, yeah, but what he heard is I don't normally do that. And it doesn't even occur to me. But uh, sometimes I think it's painful for people to be near me when to me, it was me being loving. It's truly good intent. But it doesn't necessarily matter what my intent is. Uh, You have to recognize that your life has ripples. And if you want a better life, you can't only focus on what you want. You actually have to empathetically understand how you show up and impact your environment. And sometimes the best way to get what you want is not directly, but indirectly by showing up a little bit differently for somebody else. So they step up because you don't have to be the who does all the hows. Um, but you do have to increase your awareness of the impact you have on those around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and who not hows another one of those coach things that, that, uh, you know, has really landed with many. In fact, I heard it mentioned uh, today on on the podcast with Tim Ferriss, <laughs> which was kind of funny. Um, but uh, but but in your case, you've got a pretty interesting who. Um, you are uh, using artificial intelligence inside a hedge fund, and uh, it's quite 
cutting edge, um, you know, from, from what I understand, you know, it, it feels that way to me. Talk to me a little bit about what you're doing and kind of how you got into it and, 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 and how you're leveraging AI. Yeah. Uh, as a tech entrepreneur, um, I started my first tech company in 1991. Uh, I've made the mistake that almost every tech entrepreneur makes, which is I love the technology. And so if you wanted me to talk about the technology, I'll wind myself up and start start talking. You know, by the way, right before my dad died, uh, my, my dad got cancer and uh, I ended up making 42 round trip flights to Philadelphia um, to take care of him during that year. And, and right before he died, he made a joke. Uh, we were in the intensive care unit and he had been in a coma. He came out and uh, I was like, oh my God, it's so good to hear your voice. I, I didn't think I would ever do that again. And he says, well, how does this relate to Veritas, which, which was the name of my old company? And, and he was kind of poking me that no matter what happened, I always relate it back to business, even right on his deathbed. Um, That's funny. <laughs> yeah, kind of, but not. Um, anyway. Well, you got to <laughs> laugh. You have to laugh, but, but yeah. I hear you. I mean, yeah. But as a tech entrepreneur, you love what you do. And you're constantly thinking about how to do more of what you want to do. But really, as, as a tech entrepreneur that's successful, you realize that it's not about what you do. It's about what the customer gets. So the technology that we build, I call an insight engine. It's, it's uh, equations and algorithms and uh, recipes for success, you know, methods of creating value or testing things, validating data, finding mistakes, figuring out which variables most proximately relate to the outcome you're looking for, automations, execution capabilities. And, and to have this all be autonomous AI is like wicked cool. And if I, if I talk to you about some of the things it did, you'd think they were cool too. But the truth is, from a business standpoint, nobody cares. What they care about is amplified intelligence. That's what they get. They want to be able to make better decisions, take smarter actions, and continually improve performance. And how we do that, if they knew how to do it themselves, they would do it themselves. The reason they're using AI to do it is because they, they don't necessarily want to know how to do that, but they know that's what they want. So our focus is on amplified intelligence. And, and frankly, I believe that's a 25-year cornerstone idea that, that for the next 25-year chunk and anybody listening to this, amplified intelligence is going to be one of the key issues in business because AI, machine learning, data science is going to get better faster. And it's already at a tipping point where if you said, when is AI going to be good enough to do any specific thing? It's already good enough to do whatever you're thinking about in an, any specific thing. What it's not good enough is to do lots of things generically. So, so it's like you're building specialists. And it turns out, you asked me a who, not how question. 
I really believe that technology can be a who. Mm -hmm. So there's a concept in strategic coach that says, if you're a simplifier, then partner with a multiplier. And it makes sense. And in a sense, if you have something simple enough that it can be multiplied, but you know how to make it simple, your skill set may not be the one who understands how to get distribution. On the other hand, if somebody's great at distribution, they're looking for something worth putting through their channel. Intellectually, my skill set is, is I'm a fabulous simplifier. I see the big picture and I can find the golden thread to get from here to what's possible. And I do it again and again and again. But what I've figured out over time is we have the ability to build who's little, little pieces of technology. Like I said, it's good enough to do almost anything. So if you define what you really need, you can build an algorithm or an automation or a process, we call them systems, to do almost any how that you're looking for. And over time, we're going to start to make technology seem more and more human. It's mm -hmm. called anthropomorphizing, you know, and it's, it's naming the program Al or mm -hmm. uh, Siri. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? How many times have you unintentionally said thank you to Siri? So you know, <laughs> I'll say something like, you know, set my alarm for eight in the morning, and it says I've now set your alarm, and I say thanks. And I'm like, ooh, what? I just said. Mm -hmm. um, it starts to feel like you're having a relationship with the technology, and uh, I actually believe that's inevitable. Is uh, you know, most new technologies end up starting in porn, gambling, or internet marketing. But uh, that's just because there's easy money and fast adopters there. But I, I believe that AI is going to uh, become a companion. I believe that AI, uh, you'll start to take AI and put it with some special purpose robots uh, for senior care. There, mm -hmm. There's tons of things that just are obvious business cases. And my belief is that you don't have to predict technology, what you predict is human nature. Mm -hmm. so, so to me, there's four stages to the adoption of a new technology. The first is, so what, who cares? Since the beginning of cavemen and the wheel, if it doesn't help you do what you already do, then you don't have time for more. So stage one is always about the individual thinking, does it help me do what I already do better? Stage two is what else could I do? And this is a, in strategic coach, there was a concept called the ceiling of complexity that says, even if you tried harder or did more, you've reached the point of diminishing returns and you have to do something different. It really means you have to stop doing certain things to make room for other things. And as a technology was good enough to help you do what you already did, you then have to open your mind and say, but what could I do or what should I do that would result in even better performance? And it means throwing away a little bit of the old to make room for the new. But you're creating new capabilities. I believe that stage one is about you or the person evaluating. Stage two is, is about your team. So it's, it's expanding further. Stage three is really where 
you have these new capabilities and your identity starting to change and, and you start to get a little bit more muscular and capable. And what happens is it changes the game you play and you say, what new product, service, or offering could I do leveraging this technology? It's literally going to change how you show up in the marketplace. So in stage one, you're defining the game you play and the metrics to help you measure, are you getting what you want? And they tend to be metrics like efficiency, effectiveness, or certainty. But you have to keep score because you can't say, does it help me do what I do even better without keeping score? There has to be a way, there has to be a way to know better. Okay. Stage two, as you add new capabilities, you probably have similar metrics. But in stage three, when you're playing the new game, the metrics have to change because you're playing a new game. And you get to choose kind of how you keep score to make sure you're getting what you want. The distinction I make is stage three is where people you don't know are using the technology, but to do something that you can anticipate. That's why it's a product, a service, or offer. Stage four is where it really starts to become viral. Stage three, it can become popular. Stage, stage four, something happens. I call it transformation. And the reason is, is that it becomes a platform and people saw the success you had playing the new game and it actually is going to change the game they play or it even changes the playing field of your industry. People come to you with money and ideas and they say, I, I have this idea. Can that thing you do over there, do this for me. Because if we just do this, I think there's a whole new market. And in a sense, the technology starts to become a platform. And the distinction for me there is people you don't know are going to do things that you didn't anticipate with it. And so as you chunk higher and higher through that thing, you have to get more and more clear about the generic capability that has to be simple enough that it's worth multiplying. But what's happening is, is you're building many new capabilities that used to be done by people. And in a sense, you can build an army of who's that are really technologies that will continually evolve or get better. They don't get angry if you put them on the sideline or if you say it's not the right time, and it's, it's going to radically change how we do business and how we deploy resources uh, opportunistically. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And um, I'm thinking of a friend, uh, Jim Grody, who's a local uh, mentor and very successful entrepreneur, also a member of Abundance 360. And he's heavily invested in how to program artificial intelligence with unconditional love and um, really try to do some of the things that you know you you talked about with the seniors or whoever it is that you know might benefit from that kind of interaction what i'm what i'm uh, really intrigued with what you're doing is although you know you say artificial intelligence um, for uh, hedge funds or in your case your hedge fund um, really, what you're talking about is a long-term, a 25-year or longer idea, which is how to apply AI across everything that we do, this human experience, and 
And, and you know, what, what's kind of striking me in just kind of having heard your journey, your story, you know, today is there's very much a similar through line that, that you want to, whether it be do well and do good with your investors or, you know, the experience that, that's been your life, you have a, a something internal that's driving you this loving energy that is about kind of enhancing the human experience and you're just using technology to do that but you know it, it's really to me i think the way that technology needs to be used there's a lot of conversation about tech good or bad but i think you're really using it for good and and that's exciting yeah actually if you go back to your original comment where Ener- loving is the natural energy. Um, I really think that many people didn't realize they could have a profitable business that actually did well and did good. But once you start to realize it's possible, you see so many more applications of that, and you realize that there are many high perceived value uses that don't actually cost you a lot of money and it allows you to share or collaborate and and create opportunities for many other people. Uh, It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, meaning I win, you lose. I I really think I win, you lose is a a very unevolved model. Collaboration is way more evolved, but even collaboration can become I win and you win, and and it just creates more. It's about making the pie bigger. Collaboration is doing stuff together, and and I don't have to try to thwart you. We can both do well. But finding ways to help them win bigger and, and having that create even more potential energy to have you be bigger and better and more productive is, is really where I see AI uh, having the biggest impact on the planet is, is when people start to operate from a sense of abundance rather than scarcity, everything changes. No um, question. No question. Well, you're certainly uh, an abundant thinker and doer. And uh, it's, it's, it's awesome to have a chance to hear a little bit more about that today. Howard, uh, as we wrap up, any kind of final thoughts or anything you want to share with the audience? I write a weekly newsletter that's normally for clients, but for uh, people who listen to your podcast, they can get it for free. Uh, comes out twice a week on Friday. I send a set of 20 links that are about AI technology or thought leadership and 20 links about markets and things that move the markets or, or things that are relevant in business. And then on Sunday, I write a piece that has two or three very short thought articles. Again, they're no cost. And uh, I will give you the... They, they simply text to this number and put the word genius in the text and they'll get it for free. And then we'll, uh, I'll give you what that that short code is, so you can sure. edit that. In, but uh, yeah, we'll put it in the we'll put it in the show notes. Um, so for what I'll basically say is, so if you uh, 
take the if you simply text the word genius to the number provided, you'll get that for free. And I think you'll like it. We never sell anything. And frankly, it's a, it's a lot of good ideas that'll keep you thinking. That's great. That's great. Well, we'll make sure to include that in the show notes. And um, Howard, thank you for taking the time and for showing up so vulnerably and sharing all of your journey and, and the wisdom that you have from it. And um, I'm really excited about what you're doing and, and how it's going to make a difference in the world. So thanks for that and uh, for being here today. Yeah, well, this was a lot of fun. Uh, very different than uh, any other interview <laughs> like this I've done. Yeah. So a good job. And uh, I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks so much and uh, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.